Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, professor and licensed therapist. Today, I have a special guest on the show, listener Derek. He emailed me and said that he wanted to interview me because he is considering becoming a therapist or working in psychology. And instead of just having it just be a regular conversation that normal people have, I decided to record it and put it on the internet available for everyone to hear because that's how I am. So, Derek, w- welcome to the show. Thank you. Why don't you introduce yourself to Podcast Land just to let people know who you are? Well, my name is Derek, and I'm an undergraduate student at SPSCC, which is in Olympia. I'm studying psychology. So, what year are you right now? Uh, second year. Second year. Yeah, I have two more quarters left at SPS. Okay. Yeah, I'll get my bachelor's in psychology, is the plan. Okay. Where'd you grow up? Did you grow up in, a, in, in Olympia? Uh, no, actually, I grew up in Montesano. Okay. I'm not sure if you know where that is. but No, it's, is that in California? No, it's actually in Washington. It's about uh, <laughs> a half an hour southwest, I think, of Olympia. Okay. Yeah. What kind of town is it? Uh, it's very small. Very, okay. Yeah, it's pretty rural. I think of rolling hills, lots of cattle. No, it's more dumpy town. Oh, dumpy town. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. It's funny. I thought it was in California, even though it's like, what, 30 miles away from where? Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, so what questions do you have for me, Derek? Yeah. So first off, I'd just like to clarify what your job is exactly. Okay. I say that I'm a professor. That's my main job in which I teach master's level people to become therapists or counselors. I also have a small private practice that I operate and I also provide supervision to people that have graduated with the master's and are seeking licensure. And I'm a podcaster. So Right. <laughs> After you graduate from Antioch, can you teach there? I saw online that that was a possibility. After you graduate, can you teach there? Yeah, like you're, you're qualified after that to teach. Well, each school has its own qualification requirements. At Antioch, we require that people are licensed, but occasionally we hire people that are not. Licensed how? You have to be licensed in your profession. So if it's a licensed marriage and family therapist or a licensed mental health counselor or a licensed social worker or a licensed psychologist. Can you describe the differences between counseling, therapy, psychoanalysis, all that stuff? Yeah, very confusing. We in this profession have way too many words and way too many factions. In general, uh, and this is my opinion to some extent, but... In general, when you say therapist, in the context of the profession as it relates to other professions, therapist relates to marriage and family therapists. Counselors refer generally to master's level counselors, which are mental health counselors, or in other states they call them licensed professional counselors, I believe, LPCs. Um, Now, social workers can go any of different directions. And then you have psychologists who have a license in psychology and our doctoral level um, always. Now, on the other side, you can have a, like me, I'm a a licensed marriage and family therapist, but you can have licensed marriage and family therapists that have master's or doctorates. So there's that confusion. And then you said psychoanalysis. And so psychoanalyst is reserved for people that practice and have been trained in and have received lots of supervision around becoming a psychoanalyst which is the, in a nutshell, you could say, is the traditional Freudian psychoanalysis where you come in three times a week and you lay on a couch and an analyst analyzes what you're saying. 
Um, it's a specific kind of therapy, essentially, a very specific form of psychotherapy. So that's another word, a psychotherapist. Some people prefer counselor versus psychotherapist or counseling versus psychotherapy. Some people consider counseling to be more practical to some extent, but some people don't. Some people consider psychotherapy to mean more of the kind of therapy in which you involve people's relationships. It's perhaps more in depth, but the words can be interchangeable at times. So it's very confusing. Okay. So what's the process like of becoming certified in all those different fields in Washington State? Yeah. So in Washington State, which is very similar to other states, in order to become a licensed marriage and family therapist or a licensed mental health counselor or a licensed social worker, you have to be you have to get a master's from a program that is geared towards licensure. So you can take a you can get a master's in psychology from a from an educational institution. And it may or may not be geared towards licensure and may or may not even qualify you for licensure. So you have to be careful about where you're going. So do you have to go to a specific school to become licensed? Essentially, you have to go to a program that is geared towards licensure because licensure is a state legal designation and it's all in the state laws. So the state law will designate exactly what kind of training you need to get and then programs will gear themselves towards that towards those requirements. So our requirements meet the state requirements for licensed marriage and family therapy. Antioch also has a program for mental health counselors, and that is geared towards making you licensed in the state of Washington as a mental health counselor. We also have a psychologist degree that is geared towards getting you licensed in Washington as a psychologist. That's a doctorate. And that's the CIDE program? Yeah. And then UW has a master's in social work that's geared towards you getting a licensed uh, social work. It's LIC, licensed clinical social worker, I believe it's called. Okay. Licensed so, independent clinical social worker. I think that's okay. the long name of it. So how does the CIDE program differ from a PhD? I've, I've heard a lot of different yeah. opinions on that. This and, is another one of those things where... It's such a squishy world, and, and sometimes the distinction is there and sometimes it's not. But in general, CIDs are supposed to be more practical, more geared towards actual practice, and PhDs are more geared toward research. But that's not always the case. Certainly, I would say if you're looking at a CID program, it probably in all likelihood is geared more towards practicing and more towards working as a professional. PhDs could go either way. Some PhDs are geared very practically and some PhDs are completely impractical in terms of its application to a profession. Some PhD programs in psychology are completely geared toward you becoming a researcher solely. One thing that I want to do with my career is to conduct a lot of research. Okay. Can I do that with the CIDI program at Antioch? In general, yes. Getting a doctorate in – if you want to do research, you definitely want to get a doctorate. That's, that's pretty much for sure. You could do research from a master's, but it would be much harder given not only the education – because master's programs do not give you much research education at all, whereas a doctorate definitely will. Plus, in the world of academia – you will not get much respect, if any, if you just have a master's. <laughs> so, so well, let me ask you what sort of what sort of research do you want to do? Are you what sort of research are you interested in? I'm interested in like psychopathy and uh, that kind of stuff. Okay, 
that sort of reason. So if you said, I'm really interested in how rats respond to me electrocuting them five times a day and then only feeding them, blah, 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 I would say, do not get a PsyD. But with psychopathy, it's related to human beings. It's related to observation. It's related to assessment. It's related to, I'm guessing, correct me if I'm wrong, talking to people, getting to know them, how what makes people tick, and, and that sort of thing. Is that correct? Yeah. So a PsyD could be a good route to take for that research. At Antioch, the PsyD program, you def, you have to do a dissertation, as with any doc- doctorate, you have to do a dissertation. And it usually is a study. It's usually a study that you, that you conduct yourself. At the PsyD program at Antioch, your dissertation could be completely on psychopathy. Um, and it would be whatever you wanted to do with the approval of your team and your committee. But they have they grant you a lot of freedom in terms of what you want to do with that. So, And you would learn prior to your dissertation all the different kinds of research methods, qualitative, quantitative. There's a lot of statistics. What ways would you suggest that I can get involved now or when I have a four-year degree or are at least in a four-year uh, degree program? Yeah, well, I would say... Yeah, volunteering. One of the best places to volunteer in this area, anyway, is the Crisis Line. I know a lot of people who volunteer at the Crisis Line. It's um, a phone number that people will call when they're in crisis, and they'll either talk to you anonymously or not anonymously, and you will, to some extent, counsel them in a crisis, or it's to get a referral to call somewhere else. I, myself, many years ago, while I was a therapist, had a crisis with a personal friend of mine, and I was so flustered and confused and freaking out that I knew what I needed to do, but I was so flustered I didn't know what I needed to do, so I called the crisis line and they told me what to do. And it's just comforting. And so if you volunteer there, you not only get to counsel people to some extent, but you also learn a lot about how the system works and where to refer people in situations like that. So that's one place. Other places like what I, what I did when I got my experience prior to my master's was I volunteered at a, a group home for, for kids. So I just showed up and said, hey, I, I want to volunteer. I have 100 hours to, you know, to, to use and use me in whatever way you want. And the staff therapist actually just had me counsel a lot of the kids who would take, you know, we would take walks and we would just talk about stuff. And I would attend some of the group therapy meetings. And for, I think you talked about the group home in a previous episode, but were you a therapist then? In the previous episode, I was actually working as a non-master's level therapist worker in the home. The home I'm talking about now was actually around the same time but a different place. You mentioned a non-master's therapist. Right. So, so, yeah, so I'm being, I'm (laughs) using my words wrong here. Okay. They would have called me like a youth counselor or a youth worker. Um, So what's been your experience at Antioch? What drew you specifically to Antioch? Okay. What drew me to Antioch in the very beginning, back in 1995, was that I asked around what do I need to do to become a therapist? I had no idea. I had no idea what the industry was. And I just, I just knew I wanted to be a therapist. I wanted to be a counselor. And so I started asking around. And many of the programs that are around to, today were around back then. 
And what attracted me to Antioch was that it was geared towards people who are, who were working, which was nice. And you could work at your own pace and you could take night classes, whereas other schools are more traditional. And it's during the day, Monday through Friday. Another thing that appealed to me was that Antioch had, had a really good reputation. People would say, oh, I have a few friends that went to Antioch and they just had a wonderful experience. Whereas the other schools, I didn't hear it that much. I also heard that Antioch was a progressive educational institution and in that they don't have grades. They're more interested in making you a competent professional rather than just assigning a grade to you. Um, they don't want there to be competition between the students because when, whenever you have grades, ABCs, there's inevitably competition among people. Like, ah, oh, I got an A and you got a B and I win, you know, where that doesn't make any sense when you're training professionals to do a job. And it really doesn't make any sense in education in general, I guess. And over the years, you know, I started teaching there. And so I became an employee and have really learned that at least my department in the master's program, the people are just really wonderful to work with. And I know that there are inevitably politics and drama that occur in higher education and we have a fair amount of that, but it is m overshadowed by the uh, sense of family and goodwill that I experience. Um, so one more question about Antioch. Last time I was there, and I think it was last summer, the school I was told was not accredited with uh, the APA. Yeah. What does that mean exactly? So the PsyD program, the doctorate program, is not accredited by the APA. They're trying very hard to become <laughs> accredited and have been trying for years. And that's not uncommon. It takes a long time to impress the, Ameri the American Psychological Association. They're, they're very uh, stingy with their accreditations. <laughs> the PsyD program, from what I understand, the professors are optimistic about eventually becoming accredited, but they don't have any ideas to when that's going to happen. They're like I said, they're working very hard. And I believe that that will happen at some point. Well, let me rephrase that. I believe that if it's going to happen, they have what it takes to make it happen. So, for instance, Seattle used to have another PsyD program at Argosy University. Mm -hmm. And they kept fighting to get accredited. And again, this is all rumor, but I've been talking to people that were actually professors at Argosy at the time. Argosy is a large institution and just decided to give up trying to get accredited by the APA, they figure, I think they just read the tea leaves and figured out it was going to take way too much resources to actually satisfy the APA. And even if they did, they might not actually ever get accredited, even if they did everything perfect. And so they just closed their PsyD program. So there are students, you know, halfway through having spent $100,000, $80,000 in, uh, you know, four or five years in their doctorate, and then their school says, we're closing shop, you know, in a bit. All those students were, of course, very upset, and the professors all lost their jobs, and a lot of them came to Antioch, by the way. Just incidentally, I heard, again, rumor that they were absorbed by another school, luckily, and they could transfer all their credits to this other school, so they were um, okay in that respect. But having said that, in essence, when a program is doing everything that it needs to do in order to be accredited, you can pretty much be assured that their program is good. So accreditation, in my mind, as a consumer, people should be thinking about that it's an indication of quality, essentially. You want to get a quality education, right? And you want to get an education that will get you something. And so 
getting a CITE at Antioch will get you licensed as a psychologist. So, it, you know, there, there's nothing wrong there. So practically speaking, it's not that much of a difference whether you go to a accredited program or not. But if you go to a non-accredited program, you just want to do more research to make sure that it'll get you what you want. My program, the Marriage and Family Therapy Program, is accredited by a different organization called Coampt, and we have been accredited for many years, and that's our highest accreditation. And our the Mental Health Counseling Masters is also accredited in, in their highest uh, accrediting body as well. And then the University Antioch as a whole is accredited by a different institution. It's kind of confusing. So how do you suggest doing my research, figuring out if it's a good program? Not that I doubt that it is, but... How can I figure out if it's not accredited with APA? How do I become familiar with the other forms of of uh, of that? Like other universities or other ways of evaluating whether or not a program is good? Yeah, just ways to evaluate the program. Well, it depends on again what you want from the program, and it all and whether accredited or not, you should always be asking yourself this: is What do you want to do with the degree? Do you want to become a licensed psychologist? Does the program allow you to do that? To do that? Um, and in that way, I would directly ask the university and I would ask them for figures because we're, we're moving to a world in which universities are required to provide data to prospective students to be able to say, we've done research and here's the data. So one data point is how many of your graduates become licensed as psychologists or, or if you want to be a researcher, you would ask, what are my prospects for research upon graduation? You know, what what can you do for me in that way? So my goal as a uh, student of psychology is very broad. I'm not sure exactly what I want to go into, if it's going to be research or strictly therapy or teaching. There's so many avenues, and I want to pursue all of them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how do you choose between them or yeah. um, that, that sort of thing? Well, I would choose one that serves all those purposes. Um, if you chose a strictly research institution, you would miss out on the clinical piece. There are so many avenues that I want to go down, but I don't want to spread myself too thin. How do you weigh the difference? Well, it sounds to me like you really want to get a doctorate. That's that's probably one thing. Definitely. Yeah. Because I, I want to get a concentrated education in in everything. So it's, it's difficult to choose. Yeah. Well, you're asking really good questions, by the way, Derek. I mean, and a lot of people don't, and even current students don't ask the question you're asking. It depends on the program you go to, like I said, but it also depends on the sort of things that you choose to do within that program. A, a doctorate typically will have over 3000 hours of internship time total. Now, some, some of it's called pre-internship, some of it's called practicum, some, you know, but in general, you have 3000 hours where you are working out in the field. Well, depending on where you work, it will really determine the sort of experiences that you'll get and, and it will determine the kind of competencies, competencies you will gain. And that's a lot dependent on the student to decide where they want to do that and, how, and the work they do. The other thing is, is what kinds of things you read up on, the kinds of things you get interested in. For instance, 99% of the knowledge that I have about psychodynamic theory is completely self-driven. I was taught very little about psychodynamic therapy. So what, do you, what are you interested in? Who do you, who do you connect with? And then the other thing is mentor, mentors, getting mentors in the area that you want to get involved in. One of the things that I see some students do is they graduate and, you know, they, they get by and they meet their requirements, but they leave their experience without ever having a mentor who 
they're gravitated towards. And then they graduate and they just feel like they're kind of lost in, you know, in the woods. Whereas when you have mentors that can, you know, really teach you a lot more than what a class can teach you, you're a lot better off. What is the continuing ed like? Because mm-hmm. I know in other fields, there's lots of continuing ed. Um, is that a possible way to delve into other issues that I didn't that I maybe won't get in school. Yeah. Yesterday I showed up to a training and I thought I was 10 minutes early, but in reality I was a month early because it wasn't on February 15th. It was on March 15th. Each licensed professional has their own requirements on continuing ed. So you have to do a certain amount of continuing ed every year. But those people that I find that really want to further their career post-graduation will go to a lot of trainings and really try to benefit from them. But trainings are sort of a crapshoot. Some of them are great and some of them are terrible. Some of them you won't learn anything at. <laughs> and it can be a colossal waste of money. So you have to do some research on that on that end, but that can be hard. But for me, my continuing ed has mainly been just being interested in something. The other night, I was interested in a particular in a particular nuance of the history of family therapy. And at midnight, I decided to do some research on it because it just, you know, tickled my fancy at the the moment. And so I learned a little bit about Lyman Wynn and these kinds of people. So I guess in essence, it's like you kind of have to be a nerd in the field in order to become the sort of professional that you want to be if you want to be that sort of person. What am I saying? You should see my pile of books of uh, casual reading. I have like the socially skilled child molester and the um, gift of fear books like that. And so I'm definitely obsessed with the field and, and, uh, I think that will help. If you are interested in that, then yeah, that's, that's probably a sign that this is your calling, right? Do you feel, do you feel a calling to the field or definitely? Yeah. yeah. And you definitely want to be a counselor. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's what I mainly want to do. Like primarily I want to be a counselor, therapist, whatever you want to call it. But there's also a lot of different avenues that I want to go down. I want to be really creative with my career and, and, not feel uh, trapped in one uh, in one avenue. Yeah, that's smart. Because in my career and talking to colleagues of mine, if you do any one of the things that I've told you that you you'll be qualified to do, it can be it can become wearisome. I teach part of the time, and I do therapy part of the time, and I supervise part of the time, and I go to meetings and. I go to various different, you know, doing all these different things. And it's just an exciting day and an exciting week for me because every, but if I did any one of those things for all 50 hours of my week, I think it might drive me a little crazy. Mm -hmm. So you're smart to want to do that. So you mentioned that you started teaching how long after you graduated? The next quarter after I graduated. Well, I was a teaching assistant and then a year after I was a full adjunct professor. So with therapy, how, how long after you graduated did you start therapy? Uh, again, right away. Right away. Yeah. I mean, you're an intern therapist during your master's or during your doctorate. And they hired me at my internship site. So there was no break in my internship to becoming a, you know, employee of an agency providing therapy. But I also opened up my private practice um, right away as well. But it took forever for it to not forever, but it was a very slow start to my private practice. I'm curious as to how someone young in therapy or as a therapist, how that's, how that comes across to clients. Yeah. You know, because as you said, it's difficult for people, uh, knowing that you're new to the field, you know, if you're also young, right. You know, right. So if all goes according to plan four years from now, I'm sure you won't look that much older than you do now. 
you'll be a therapist. And I, I, I'll tell you, like, you don't look that young. So, so, um, you have that going for you. You know, there are some people that just look like they're 13, you know, like Mandy, she's, I think almost 30 or something. And she looks like she's, you know, 13 at times, but anyway, so you have that going for you. Um, little facial hair wouldn't, wouldn't hurt a suit jacket, that kind of thing. That's what I did when I was a young therapist. I dressed in a lot of suits, trying to make, make myself look older. Yeah. I mean, there's pros and cons, you know, for, for some families, they'll look at you and be like, how, I'm not going to listen to this guy. He's, he's too young. But some families will be like, oh, great. He can relate to my kid. Cause a lot of family therapy involves working with kids. A lot of therapy involves working with, with, you know, teenagers and children. And so, you know, it's a pro and a con, but I, I found that and I still have to tell people how old I am because they because th- now they think I'm 26, you know, whereas when I was 26, they thought I was 17. I actually one time I was involved with this family and the parents were divorced and were contentious with each other. And the father really didn't like me working with his kids. And for I don't know why he just I think it was just because he thought I was against him, which I wasn't. He actually went to the court and said to a judge, my wife, my ex-wife is sending my children to a 17-year-old therapist that has no qualifications. And the judge said, okay, um, I'm going to issue a bench order that says that these children cannot see that 17-year-old therapist. So they didn't check the facts at all? No. That's the way the law works, by the way, is like someone, anyone can say anything and a judge can do anything. That's what I found. And there's nothing anyone can do. And it's like, um, not only was I graduated, I think at that point, I wasn't 17. I was probably, you know, an old 26 or something. But, but anyway, so even today, I still have to tell people how how old I am and not because I want to get some sort of false respect or something, but it does help the older you are. It does help people feel a little bit more at ease. So there's that. But a lot of it has to do with the way you carry yourself. I, that, I think that's a main thing. Is what, When I was 26 and I was an intern, I tried to carry myself as someone who had confidence, as someone who knew what he was doing, even though inside I really did not feel like I knew what I was doing. But if you were going to a professional, you would at least want to get the vibe that the person isn't falling apart. You know what I mean? So I think a lot of it just has to do with confidence level. So going off of that, you're a marriage and family therapist? Therapist, And and I think that's a direction that I, I may pursue. But how is that accepted if you're not married or if you're not in a relationship like that? You know, like, how does that come across? Because it's a, it's a similar situation, I think. Right. It's like, say, you're 21 and you're talking to a parent about parenting their 17-year-old son. And they're like, well, do you have kids? And usually when a client asks those questions, like, do you have kids or are you married? They're usually wanting to know if you understand them. Or they're, they're trying to get a quick route to, are you competent at what you're doing? In reality, so even if you did have kids and even if you were married, everyone experiences the world differently. And everyone comes from a different culture or a different town. And so you're never going to have the exact background of a client. So essentially the question is, if you have never been married, can you help someone with their marriage? Mm-hmm. And if you've never have, had kids, can you help someone with their parenting? And the answer to me is yes. I know people that have never been married and never had any kids that are some of the best marriage and family therapists I've ever seen. Another thing I tell people to say is that they don't have to necessarily reveal aspects of their life to their client. And that's actually another question that I want to ask you is how much do you tell your clients about yourself? So there's different policies and there's different theoretical orientations regarding this. 
um, and you have to do your own kind of research about this, but my general statement to therapists and training is do what's helpful. So if it's helpful to self-disclose overall, then think about maybe doing that. But you should be very cautious because the more you talk about yourself, the more it becomes about you and not about the client. And at all times, as a therapist, you have the right, so to speak, to not disclose anything. So if, if you don't feel comfortable disclosing something, then by all means, do not disclose it. So if you don't have kids or you just got divorced or something and you would rather not talk about that, you don't, you don't have to. But having said that, I know a lot of family therapists that will self-disclose about things. They'll, they might say, well, with my son, this is what I did and da-da-da-da-da. But in conclusion on that issue, it's a very complicated issue that I did not sum up very well when I just answered your question. <laughs> well, let me ask you, Derek. If you were in therapy, how much self-disclosure would you like from your therapist? I think it's nice to be able to relate to them, but I think most of what they could tell me about themselves is going to be really anecdotal and not that helpful. So I think it's helpful to put me at ease when they talk about themselves and like how they can relate to me, uh, you know, this way or that. But it doesn't really answer any of my questions or help me deal with anything. Uh -huh. So I think it's good for the it's good for building rapport and building a relationship with your client and or with your therapist, but only to a certain extent. So some disclosure helps you to feel like you can relate or something or that mm -hmm. they understand what where you're coming from maybe. Yeah, and it just I think it uh opens the lines of communication too. Okay. So makes you feel more comfortable mm -hmm. to say things. Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel so cold and like you're in a doctor's office with like the white walls and that kind of thing. You know, yeah. you're just kind of talking a little bit. Right. Um and I think that's helpful. Okay. At, at least in the beginning, you know. Yeah. Or if, if things start to die down, get, get kind of quiet, you know, just to talk about something else okay. and uh, build more rapport. Okay. I want to ask you about Seattle, too. Yep. What made you choose the city over other locations? I'm born and raised in the area, like I said, in Issaquah and Sammamish. And then I came out here to go to UW, and I just stayed in Seattle ever since. So it's never really been a choice. I just am stuck here because I like it. <laughs> And I'm not one of those people who is in a constant state of wondering where else I should be living. I, I just don't think about it. There's probably other places I'd be happy, but... Okay, so what type of internships are available through Antioch? At any given time at Antioch, in our various you know programs, we have, I'm going to estimate, two to 300 people at internship sites. And people are constantly graduating, and there's always new students. And so we have relationships with many, many different agencies in the region and sometimes outside of the region. We have a list, but the burden is on the student to actually find the internship and get hired there. We don't just hand you over to an agency because in order to do that, it would, it would just be impossible for us to do that because logistically it just wouldn't work. So essentially we – tell our students, okay, you're eligible for internship, go find one, and they, and they start interviewing around and, and find internships. In my experience, I've worked with hundreds of students, and I've only had, I can think of one student who wasn't able to find an internship, and that was because there was some major issues with her and her abilities. But everyone else finds an internship pretty, pretty quickly. And when are you eligible for an internship? Uh, it depends on the program. In my program, you are required to take a number of classes prior to internships. So in general, it's about 
five quarters of full-time education or a year, maybe four quarters of full-time classes, and then you're eligible to do your internship. Are these paid internships? No, not usually. No, okay. At doctoral level, uh, sometimes there's a stipend, but in general, you do not get paid for internship. How would you suggest balancing working while you're going to school and working to support yourself going through school and also building a practice eventually, you know, because that'll happen after the master's program. So, um, so how would you suggest carrying yourself up through the, the master's program so you can pay for it and then balancing that with a building practice? Because it's not going to be, be enough to support you at first. So you can't just like quit your job and start a practice. So like, how do you balance those three? Some people do because they have spouses that work. So there's always that option. You can, marry rich is the, is the message there for you, Derek. But, so there's basically three different categories of students that I see. One, one category, which is what I did, which is barely worked at all through my master's and just accrued a ton of debt. And then upon graduating, worked 70 hours a week to pay it off. <laughs> so some people don't work hardly at all during their master's. And like I said, you, you know, accrue a lot of student loans that way. The, the other option is to work part-time. And essentially all that does is you know, make you go into debt less, but it raises the stress level, especially if you go at a fast pace. But at Antioch and at other schools too, you can choose to go at a slower pace. So my model that I did, which is not working hardly at all, it, made me, it helped me to graduate very quickly. And it's because I wanted to be a therapist ASAP. That was sort of my thing. And I didn't mind going into debt. I minded it upon graduation, of course, but I didn't mind it at the time. Um, and then the other, the third option is to work full time. And people will do that. So people will go a lot slower if they were full time. But the benefit is, is you go into debt much, much less. And everyone just has to gauge how much stress and how much they hate their job or how much they like their job and that kind of thing. How long approximately does it take to complete both a master's and doctoral program. So the master's program, generally, you can you can do it in like two and a half years. But ge- people generally do it in three years. And there are people who do it in four or five years. But So two and a half to three years. Uh, the doctorate, you can do it in five years if you're very efficient. But people, in my experience, usually do it in six and maybe seven or eight you have to do it in eight, I think. In the master's, you have to do it in six. But people rarely get to that limit. So again, master's, two and a half to three, and doctorate, five to six. Now, other doctorate programs that aren't geared towards you becoming a licensed psychologist. So for instance, Antioch, we're starting to develop a doctorate in counseling or counseling education, one of the two. And that will not gear you towards becoming a licensed psychologist, but it'll be for master's level counselors and therapists that want to further their education and get a doctorate in counseling. And we might even do a doctorate in marriage and family therapy. And so you're still a licensed marriage and family therapist or a licensed mental health counselor, but you're a doctoral level. And those programs typically will honor your entire master's. And so those doctorates will only take two years-ish, two or three years. So there, how long does a typical internship last? In the marriage and family therapy program, the internships last about four to five quarters, and it's part-time, so you're working about 25 hours a week. It feels like 50 hours a week, though, because it's very stressful when you're an intern. 
The clinical mental health counseling internships are shorter. They're three to four quarters, but they also have a a pre-internship practicum that they do in the Antioch Clinic, which is at Antioch University. So they sort of ramp up to an internship earlier. Uh, Doctorate level people, like I said, this ID program, you typically will have four to five different internships that span all five, six years of your studies. And they range from you know, working 10 hours a week to 50 hours a week. So it kind of depends. Your internship, internship, doctoral is a full-time job. What sort of internships are available? Like what, what would you be doing in a, a standard internship? So in marriage and family therapy, the internships are at agencies in the community that serve youth and families. So you do a lot of working with defiant teens or autistic children or parents that are struggling or, you know, marriages that are having difficulties. In the clinical mental health counseling masters, you're doing a lot of internships, again, in local agencies that are treating individual adults, often people that have chronic mental illness like bipolar or schizophrenia, and you're working in conjunction with psychiatrists. It's usually low-income people because they're being serviced at agencies that provide services to low-income people. And where would these be at? Are, are most of them in the area of Seattle? Mm-hmm. And in your area, too. Yeah, every, every community has these agencies in the community, yeah. And then doctoral-level people, and I'm speaking in general generalities here, um, and doctoral-level people, the internships can range wildly. They can be the ones that I just said. In addition to that, they can be at like neuropsych clinics where you're doing a lot of assessing for, say, um, a brain injury or some kind of cognitive issue. Um, you can do internships where um, all you're doing is assessing people on intelligence, for instance, or assessing people on ADHD. Uh, you can do internships at prisons in the doctoral program. So are most of these internships like at hospitals? Like where exactly? The main The main thing that I see is at agencies, what we call them agencies. Yeah, there was actually an internship available through SPS. It was uh, with a group of psychologists in Lacey, I think. So I'm not sure what that entails exactly, but... Right, so some internships are with groups. A group of psychologists or other professionals might get together and offer an internship. But it's kind of a pain in the ass to administer, and so most of internships are uh, only handleable by major agencies. And what I tell people actually is to go with the standard internships at the agencies because when they go with these group practices or these like invented internships, they often blow up in their face because those people aren't experienced at providing an internship, which is quite a complicated thing. I just had that happen to an advisee of mine. She was really excited that she got this um, internship that was sort of tailored specifically for her and it seemed like just like the perfect situation for her. And she was very excited. And I was excited for her. But in the back of my mind, I was like, there's a chance. And I told her, there's a chance that this isn't going to work because it's not a standard internship. And it ended up blowing up in her face. She's dealing with it well, but it wasn't pretty. So how do you differ a standard internship? Places that have had hundreds of interns come before you. <laughs> because if hundreds of interns have come before you and graduated, you know that they're a tried and true internship facility. But other places will have very – they'll have only a trickle of interns come through or they're just – or they're, it's their first internship offering. And 
you just have to be very skeptical of those offerings. So how well respected is like a first time internship? You know, you're the first person or the first uh, a few to go through this program, like with the one in Lacey. I'm not sure how big that is. It's a pretty small group. So do you think that would be worth pursuing? And the usual attraction of it is that, oh, I get to work with these professionals. It's not the typical internship. It looks like I'm going to get a lot of really excellent supervision and mentorship from these people. The downside is, is that the, the people that are offering the internship don't realize how many clients they have to actually give you. In their head, they're like, oh, we have so many clients on the wait list and all this stuff. And usually they don't in reality. Because in order to get your experience, you have to get a certain amount of hours in session with clients. And in order to provide that, they have to give you a lot of clients. And a lot of clients don't show. So they have to give you like double the amount of clients that you need because half of them won't won't continue. And most of these small operations just don't have that volume. Whereas a major agency in the area, they do have that volume. And that's what I run into a lot of times. It's very frustrating to be like three quarters into your internship and realize they're never going to be able to give you the hours you need and you're going to have to look for another internship. That's very frustrating. <laughs> so that's why I tell people to go with the standard internships. I have some practical questions for you too. Um, why did you choose your field? Um, my field is both marriage and family therapy and psychology. And the reason why I chose marriage and family therapy in the beginning is because Paul David, who has been on, whom has been on? Who has been on? Whom has been on? I think whom. Whom has been on the podcast before. Thank you, Derek. He was at orientation and I, or open house or something. And he, and I just knew I wanted to be a therapist. I definitely knew I wanted to be a therapist counselor. But what he said is like, there's two different kinds of master's level people. There's the kind of people that work with individuals. And there's the kind of people that not only work with individuals, but also also work with couples and families. And that really excited me. I definitely knew I wanted to work with individuals, but I was, I was also very excited about the prospect of working with couples and families. And so that's why I decided to become a marriage and family therapist. The bummer about the label of marriage and family therapist is, is it sounds like we only work with marriage, you know, couples and families. But in reality, most of the clients that come to marriage and family therapists are still individuals, but but so we really should be called individuals and marriage and family therapists. They've done research on it. And the vast majority of people that show up at an office for a marriage and family therapist, they're individuals because that's who mo- most of the people that seek therapy are individuals. So, And so if you get a degree in marriage and family therapy, you can still counsel individuals? Yeah. Okay. That was something that confused me with the labels too. And the reverse. If you get a degree and become licensed in mental health counseling, you can also treat couples and families. So it's just a matter of whether or not you believe and whether or not the community believes that you have competence in that area. And for instance, I have a colleague of mine who hires me to consult her on her couples because she has a mental health counseling license. And so for the past eight years, geez, has it been that long? I've been... Um, consulting. She's hired me to provide advice about how to treat her couples. And um, she's a very competent couples therapist, even though she's not a marriage and family therapist. What does a typical day look like for you? How many clients do you see? That sort of thing. You know, as I was saying earlier, it's so varied (laughs) my life, uh, which I really enjoy. On Monday, that's my clinical day. And, you know, I operate out of my home. And so my commute is from, you know, there to there. And I treat... Uh, a variety of clients. Um, most of them are very dedicated to their therapy. 
uh, because people that go to private practice tend to be very dedicated clients. And so they're very long-term. I've been seeing one client for 16 years. That's what I do on that day. And I also see supervisees. So supervisees will come here and I will supervise them in their work. Uh, they hire me privately to provide supervision to them post-graduation. So I do that. I email people. I play with my cats. I take breaks. I go for a walk in the community. Da, da, da. Anyway, and then other days when I'm mainly teaching, um, I go to a lot of meetings. Being a professor means you go to a lot of meetings if you're a full-time professor. Because not only do I teach at Antioch, but since I'm full-time, I'm also basically an administrator. And so I have to do a lot of administration work, which uh, isn't the most exciting thing. But anyway, I go to a lot of meetings. And then I would teach. And I might talk to some advisees. And I might, you know, just gab. with. There's a lot of gabbing at the university, you know. <laughs> a lot of gabbing with support staff and with other professors, you know, it's just a lot of socializing. It sounds like you don't uh, sit all day long. So I think that's good. But what sort of stress arises from this line of work? Because I know a lot of therapists do sit a lot, Yeah, you know, all day. Yeah. And so I think you have a good way of coping with that. But what, what are some ways that stress arises from, from this? Yeah, I actually do a fair amount of sitting because it's basically... Everything that I just said involves a lot of sitting unless I'm walking, right? But, but stress in general, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a problem. Uh, people get burnt out. In my experience, it has to do with how your life is going. You know, if you're stressed out in your life, it's hard to listen to someone else's problems when you feel like you're tapped out just for yourself. So a lot of self-care, good sleep, eat right, exercise. It's very important that you take care of yourself as therapists. You have to take care of yourself much more than I think the average person does. Um, but a lot of it also has to do with socializing. I, I really, when I started out, underestimated how, how important it is for me to socialize about my work, to talk with other clinicians and consults. It's, it's so, it feels so much better when you have a difficult client and you don't know what you're doing to consult with people, either formally or informally. It just after you consult, you just feel better, you know? And I think that since I'm a fairly independently-minded person, I underestimated how, how much benefit that was. I thought I could do it all on my own, but I couldn't. It's just not possible. So therapists really need to be socialized, I think, on a daily basis. I think they need to be consulting really daily, but once a week is probably sufficient. And so do you see a therapist? Mm -hmm. Yeah, off and on. I'm not currently in therapy but because uh, I don't have time. But I plan on picking it back up once I have more time. I was talking with one of my professors who's a counselor at SPS, actually. And I was asking her about you know how she handles stress and, and that sort of thing. And she said that a good way is to see a therapist mm -hmm. because of the confidentiality. You know, you can't talk about uh, – I'm not sure how that works exactly, but you can't talk about much of your clients um, or much of what you talk about with your clients. You can't share with others. Yeah. But if you're in a clinical session with another therapist, you actually can. How does that work? That's actually not true. It's complicated, but when it depends on the profession you're in because there's different ethical codes for each profession. But in general, you can consult as long as you mask the identity of the person. But you can't tell your therapist I can't tell my therapist about my clients, even though my relationship with my therapist is confidential. My client's protected health information, I'm not allowed to tell my therapist about that. But talking with your therapist about your stress, about 
how a particular client touched an issue for you. You know, for instance, if I'm talking with a client and they touch on an issue about my parents, by all means, I'll talk with my therapist about that. So going back to my last question regarding stress and coping with that, what specific qualities would you say are important for uh, a potential therapist to develop? Yeah, it's a hard question to answer because, um, and I'm sure there's research on it, but in general, what I find is that people overestimate the amount of strength, so to speak, that they need to have in order to be a professional in this field. I have trained people who would call themselves fragile emotionally, who become very competent therapists. So I think with experience and with support, it's possible to alleviate any kind of vulnerability that you might have. Having said that, I have worked with some people that just their personality is such that it's very hard for them to work with particular kinds of clients. And so they learn that and then they just don't work with those kinds of clients. You know, there are a lot of different kinds of people who come into therapy. I've had marriage and family therapists <laughs> that I've supervised who have said to me, I can't work with couples. I do not want to work with couples. They drive me nuts. Like, I just can't stand it. It just touches something in me that aggravates me. I don't want to do that. And I say, okay, well, now you know that limitation. That's fine. Don't work, don't work with couples. Even though you're a marriage and family therapist, don't work with, don't work with couples. Um, some people don't like to work with five-year-olds who have been sexually abused. It's just too difficult for them. And so they just know that and they don't work with people like that. So it, it really just depends. I'm, I'm interested what you think about yourself in this instance. I mean, when you think about becoming a clinician and working with people directly and hearing difficult stories, like what kind of worries do you have specifically around that? Uh, I think I'm worried about taking it home, you know, not being able to kind of shut off after a session and ruminating on certain cases. Yeah, that definitely happens in the beginning. I, I think it happens more so in the first, you know, number of years as a therapist. And again, with proper supervision and consultation, it should alleviate any of that. Um, usually when people ruminate, I just had a supervisee call me last night, actually at like 10 p.m. at night and say that, and you know, he was struggling with something that had happened. And basically due to the nature of the issue, I just advised him to just distract himself and know that he's on the right track with this client and that he doesn't need to ruminate on it. Sometimes when you're ruminating, it means that you've made a mistake or something or that you're not seeing something correctly or you're not doing something. And so if you talk with your supervisor, you can usually figure out what that is and then put that on the, on the agenda for something to do. But in general, I do that. I mean, I, I do that sometimes. There are some people that really plague me. You know, there's some difficulties that really plague me. And I think that's human. You know, if someone that you know, whether it's a client or otherwise, is suffering or has been through a great deal of suffering or you know is going to suffer in the future, it can be very distressing because you're a human being and you have compassion for people. And that's just a reality. And if you're one of those life is a sunny rainbow sort of people, therapy might not be for you because the world is a dark place at times. The, the world in general is a sunny place, but there are dark corners and accepting that is a part of being a non-stressed out therapist. How would you say countertransference affects your ability as a therapist? Um, an example that I'm, I'm a little worried about is that, you know, I grew up in an abusive household and I want to work with other people that have gone through that. But at the same time, I'm worried about, you know, countertransference. And I think I'm using that right. 
how do you cope with that? Yeah. How, how do you get yourself to the place where you can help people with that and not take that home? Right. Well, you're, you're on your own journey with that. It's a hard question for me to answer for you particularly. But in general, what I see with people that come from, say, abusive households, their counter-transference will kick in when they experience a client that has abuse that's happening right now or in recent history, and particularly if they're the perpetrator. I mean, say, you know, a, an abusive father comes to you for therapy and he wants help with his parenting and he believes that spanking his child is, is okay, that kind of thing, you know? Can you see the situation as clinically objectively as possible, um, which is a, a whole problematic phrase in and of itself because we can't really be objective, but will your countertransference interfere in an unhelpful way with the therapy? In all likelihood, it will. But it's not a matter of, of saying, I need to get rid of my countertransference. It's a matter of being aware of it, accepting it, being uh, accepting of yourself and saying, I, I have this history, I, I have this vulnerability, I have this reaction right now, and that's okay. I'm not going to try to get rid of it, but I want to know it. So countertransference is something that we become aware of and not try to deny and have no aspirations of getting rid of. So you become aware of it, you metabolize it, you think about it, you consult about it, and it's going to affect you, but you just try to make the best of it. We were talking a little bit earlier about revealing personal information, and how, how do you think that plays into, into this situation? Well, it can help, certainly, you if you're working with a, say, a, you know, a 12-year-old that has been abused or is in the process of being in an abusive family and they're guarded and, you know, and um, you know that they've been abused and, and they're not talking that much, you can say, look, you know, I was your age once and I knew what that felt like and I certainly didn't want to talk to some strange therapist because I didn't trust that person and I didn't know what they're going to do. But I can tell you... Um, Here's, here's what I can do to help you. And, and you don't have to tell me anything because this is what I would have wanted someone to tell me because this is what – I had a therapist back then and they didn't tell me the following things and here's what I'm you – know. so you can imagine that that approach, that self-disclosure could really help someone in that position, right? But like I said earlier, you have to really make sure that what you're doing is helpful and not sort of self-serving because the flip side to that coin is – Someone says, yeah, I was abused as a child, and, and they're wanting to process their own issue. And then you say, oh, I was too. And then you talk for 10 minutes about your life, and the client sitting there going, I'm paying you to hear your story? That's, I don't want to do that right now. How do you use, or how would you suggest using your own experiences? And that's sort of the same question, but I'm wondering, you know, should you, uh, maybe not specialize, but should you counsel people who have gone through the, the same things you have. So like with me, you know, should I specifically target people who have been in abusive relationships or should that be something that I actually avoid? Uh, I wouldn't say avoid it. Um, that, that, that I wouldn't say that that's a journey that you'll go on for yourself, but it depends. I mean, some people I know that have gone through specific situations really dedicate their career to treating people that are in similar situations. You know, there, uh, there's a mother that I know, she's a therapist, and she, her husband and her kids all have ADHD, and she's dedicated her career to treating other people with ADHD, and she's really focused on that. So it's really just a choice. So with you specifically, do you want to treat people specifically who have been abused? You know, it's just really a choice. Personally, I wouldn't 
limit yourself at this stage saying that that's what you're going to do because you really don't know what is going to turn you on. I wanted, because when I was in my mid-20s, I was in a band and that was a major part of my life was my music. And so I had aspirations of being a therapist for for bands. I wanted to be like the rock star uh, therapist or the therapist for the rock stars. And what I found was that there wasn't a big market for that. <laughs> and so uh, quickly realized that that specialty was ridiculous. Um, so you really just have to feel out the industry and feel out what sort of people come to you. You know, like I said, and when I first started out, I got a lot of Asians, but that was not what I was planning on doing. And, and for whatever reason, I got a lot of adopted Asians. For some reason, I got like this weird, tiny specialty in the first few years of my practice where I was getting a lot of Korean adoptees you know, kids who were adopted young into white families in the States, uh, Korean kids, and the kids were having problems and the parents would come to me and say, oh, I heard from this other family that you're really good with Korean adoptees. And I'd be like, what? You know, how is it suddenly that I'm so good at this? So you just never know what's, what's going to happen. But in terms of my own self, I don't self-disclose that much, actually. Um, and I even think about that on the podcast because I, you know, realize that clients might even be listening to the podcast. So I really try to limit the things that I self-disclose about because not because I'm like incredibly private because I'm probably not, but really because when I'm working with clients, I really want it to be about them. I really want their experience, their psyche, their world to dominate the therapy experience. And I don't want my world or my experiences to mud muddy that up, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that answers the question. I'm curious of your opinion on charging for therapy. Um, I personally don't have a problem with, you know, paying my therapist or uh, eventually charging for therapy. But I understand that there are many people who just can't afford it. And what do you think about that? Yeah, there's lots of different opinions about this, and mine is just one of those opinions. It's really a, a, an ethical responsibility that all of us clinicians should provide pro bono services in one form or another, because it's it's considered unethical to only treat people who can afford your top fee, because you're essentially um, discriminating against people who have low income. And so we all have to do our service to the community. And I do that by doing pro bono and providing service to low-income people. So some people will say that you have to charge in order for it to be worth it. Have you heard that saying before? Yeah. yeah. Some people say, like, don't provide free service. Like, make sure you charge them, you know, because otherwise they won't respect it. In my opinion, that just isn't the case. Um, when I worked in an agency, there were many clients who didn't pay a cent for therapy and really valued therapy. And there are people who pay my full fee that don't take therapy that seriously. So it, it, in my experience, it doesn't, it seems kind of like an excuse to gouge patients. You know, it's like, well, charging them money actually helps them. It, you know, it seems like a convenient, uh, perspective mm -hmm. for people that charge, you know? Yeah. I, I feel personally that the more you charge, the fewer clients you have to take on. And so I think you can apply more of your time and physical resources to that client. And so they might actually benefit in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Once you're in private practice and you get enough clients, you can actually charge quite a bit. It really just depends, though. I mean, some people get paid as low as like $20 an hour. And so it really just depends. Um, in my opinion, you went through a lot of school. You paid a lot of money. 
you to go to school. You dedicated a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. You should be able to earn a living that reflects that amount of dedication. Yeah, I feel like they're not just paying for that hour you have with them, but for all the time you spent in school. Absolutely. Absolutely they are. And they're paying for the amount of paperwork you're doing and the continuing ed and the taxes and, you know, it's there's malpractice insurance, you know, there's consultation and there's, you know, all sorts of things. And so And there's also options like insurance. Can you tell me a little bit more about how insurance works with therapy? For me and my private practice and a lot of people that I know a majority of my clients use their medical insurance to pay for therapy. Well, it's like any other thing that uses medical insurance. So they come to me and then I just send a claim to their insurance and then their insurance pays me. And then there's a copay that the client pays as well. Does the insur- Do the insurance companies regulate or control how much you get paid? Yeah. If you're a paneled provider, if you're a contracted provider. So with Primera, I'm on their panel. I'm a preferred provider for Primera. And when you sign up to be on the panel, they will dictate how much you can charge. Whereas if you're not a part of the panel, you can charge whatever you want. And, but the benefit to the client is much less, usually. All the insurance companies want you to go to their preferred providers because they have more control over those people. I know that Antioch has the, uh, the counseling clinic. Can you describe that a little bit more? Um, because that's basically – it's not pro bono because you do charge, right? Uh, yeah. So the the Antioch University Seattle Clinic is located in the same building as the university, and it provides a variety of different counseling and psychological services to people. And they charge on a sliding fee scale. And 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 this is completely student run, right? Uh, the students are all the interns, and the, but the but the directors and the supervisors are not students. If that's yeah. So, but the the students of Antioch are the clinicians. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think just in general, kind of summing that up, do you think uh, the combination of pro bono, of sliding scales, of insurance, do you think that tackles the issue of people or lower income people not being able to afford therapy? Do you think uh, therapists in general are reaching that population sufficiently? Yes, I do. I think more could be done. And what needs to be done is taxes need to pay for more services for, for low-income people. And they're already doing that to to a good level, but they could do more. I mean, you can prevent so many things by providing preventative mental health care to people before things get out of control. I mean, one of the things that I think about whenever I hear about these kids who go into schools and you know shoot children. I just, I just wonder what it would have been like if a therapist was involved, you know, or a caseworker was involved. Would that have been the deciding factor that could have kept it from happening? Of course, there's no way to know. But a lot of the times what I see are just isolated families struggling. And if it's one thing that isolated families benefit from is to be not as isolated and to have people that care and to have people that will help them. Uh, I think we really underestimate uh, that service, and therapy is one of those things. And so, and we're already doing that to some extent. In terms of our industry as a whole, I would say, yeah, I think we're probably doing seventy-five percent of what we could do for low-income people. We could definitely do more, though. And you know, I, I've I've pushed professionals to provide pro bono services to people. What I find is that professionals would love to provide pro bono services, you know, because most therapists and psychologists are bleeding hearts, you know, they're very nice people, they're not greedy, usually. 
But what I find is that they don't know where to go to provide those services, you know? And so a lot of times you need to have organizations that pool together pro bono services. And those I think are lacking. So how does the counseling clinic at Antioch reach that population? Well, they charge very little to people. I think as low as like $20 per session at times. But in terms of the fee structure, I'm not that aware. Well, my question is more, how do they get their name out there? Like, how do people know about it? Again, I'm not quite sure about that. That'd be a question for the director of the, of the clinic. But um, they're always trying. If anything, they don't have enough clients coming in. And so they're always trying to get more people to come in. It's, it's like advertising. I mean, if someone has a mental health issue, how many of them know that Antioch has a clinic? That's the question. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think about what I was saying? Any reactions? I'm excited for the future. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm really excited to, to get going with uh, with my education, especially at PLU and Forward, and especially Antioch. So, yeah. yeah. So what's the current tentative plan for you? Yeah, um, well, I still have two quarters, including this one, so winter and spring. I left at Antioch, and I'm about to send in my application to PLU. So I'll go there for two years to get my BA in psychology and transfer, hopefully, to Antioch um, to get my master's in something psychology-related, counseling, therapy, and hopefully to the PsyD program for clinical psychology. So, Are there any other uh, PsyD programs or doctoral programs at Antioch other than clinical psychology? Not yet. Not yet. They're They're planning, like I said, on trying to get a doctorate in counseling or counseling education, but that's a long ways out. Mm-hmm. But maybe by the time you're here. When you imagine yourself being a clinician, what do you picture in your mind? Uh, well, I definitely want to build a, pre- a practice in Seattle. How do you feel about imagining yourself as a therapist, say, five, ten years from now? Uh, good. Yeah? Yeah, I'm definitely excited for it. I'm very, very passionate about the field. Um, I don't think I could do anything else and uh, be nearly as fulfilled. Hmm. Yeah, I, like you said earlier, I definitely feel a calling. Hmm. How come? Why are you called to it, do you think? Uh, I can't really put a finger on it. It just, uh, I love studying the field and helping people, you know, talking through problems and that sort of thing. I, I love problem solving. It's a good fit, I think. And I, I like all the different avenues that I can go down because I, I don't like the idea of being tied down to any one um, specific career path. Um, I want to be able to branch out and be creative with it. And it's not just sitting in a chair all day, talking to someone, you know, laying on a couch, (laughs) you know, hour after hour every week. Um, You know, I I want to be able to break out from that mold and, you know, conduct research. Uh, I I want to do some writing, you know, that sort of thing. Hmm. Wow. Big things. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe you'll be the famous psychopathy expert. Yeah, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) What attracts you to psychopathy? Yeah, I'm really into like brain chemistry and uh, the the physiology behind psychology. Hmm. So that's another doctoral level thing. I forgot to mention that that in master's programs there's not a lot of biology. In fact, none. But in doctorate programs there's a good amount of biology that you learn. A lot of brain chemistry and just and just basic uh, biology of the body. I heard they discovered a new part of the brain, actually. I forget, I forget what it's called, but did you hear about that? It's, I know it's in the frontal lobe, um, but it, it regulates, I think if I'm recalling it correctly, it regulates 
um, our ability to adapt approaches. Adapt approaches. Yeah, to uh, to solve a, problems. Yeah, to solve a problem. Huh. Yeah, and apparently it's only found in humans. So one more question before I go. Yeah. What made you choose Seattle? I mean, there's so many cities out there, so many areas that you could go. Yeah. Well, like I said earlier, I didn't choose Seattle as much as this is where I was born and raised. So this is what I have been, you know, sort of just indoctrinated into. And and I love Seattle. I really do. And I've been to a lot of different cities, particularly in the United States, and really have learned that Seattle has a particular thing about it that I just really like. I mean, there are a lot of other cities that I could certainly be happy in, but but I like it here. Plus, all my friends and family, like I said, are born and raised here. So if I moved away from here, like instantly, like 90% of my social life would just go away. So that's a big reason. It's a small town. It's also a big town, you know. It's generally safe. Their politics are pleasant for the most part. So I'm wondering, I'm not really sure how to phrase this question, but have you noticed any uh, like psychological trends in Seattle? Uh, like you've heard of the Seattle freeze, and I think I contacted you about that a while ago. And oh, you did said, you? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, I've looked into it because the whole Seattle freeze thing is something that intrigues me. Um, I'll tell you, my, my personal reaction whenever I hear about Seattle freeze is defensiveness because the, the accusation is that people in Seattle are cold and don't let you into their inner circle and are essentially mean to outsiders, which I find to be incredibly insulting uh, considering that everyone in my family and everyone that I know and everyone that is dear to me is from the area and I would never consider them to be cold and like exclusionary. And I have a theory about that in that, you know, whenever you move to another town, it's going to be hard to make new friends, especially if your way of socializing is a little different from the locals. And so you might feel rejected and you might just, instead of saying it's some other reason, you just blame this, the entire city. You know what I mean? It's like everyone in Seattle is cold. That's why I don't have any friends. I'm just a little skeptical of that, you know? Having said that, I have looked into the research and the, there isn't a lot of research in um, regional personality differences. There is some. And I'm going to, I actually want to make a full episode about this, but the long and the short of it, of the research I have in my head right now, there is no evidence that Seattle is colder than other cities in terms of its socializing. But they haven't looked specifically at that question in the research that I've seen. Well, I look forward to that episode. Yeah, me too. I look forward to doing the research on it. It's a little frustrating though, because you would think there'd be more research on it, but it's not a hot topic, you know, it's not a hot issue in psychology to like measure different personality traits in different cities. Yeah. It seems more of like a colloquial term that people kind of throw around just to throw it around. Right. It's much more of a thing that's in a newspaper as, as opposed to a scientific journal. Having said that, one of the theories, if there is a Seattle freeze in existence, it's because we come from a Scandinavian background in the Northwest, you know, and they tend to be colder personality wise in general. And, but that seems to be, to be really funny. Cause it's like how many people, I mean, I'm actually Scandinavian, but how many people in the area are actually culturally Scandinavian? Do you know? I, I'm guessing it's a small minority. Yeah. So, I have no idea. What do you think? Do you think people in the Northwest are, are cold? I don't know. I, I don't think so. That's not been my experience. Everyone's been very welcoming um, so far. And every time I've been to Seattle, everyone's been very friendly. So 
I haven't noticed anything. Yeah. You know, and you'll hear different things about like New York. People will say like, oh, New Yorkers, they, they're fast and they're rude and they're mean. And then you hear another person say, I found New Yorkers to be incredibly nice. Yeah. I think it could just be that people aren't used to how we socialize here, like you were saying. Yeah. So I think people in different areas socialize differently and ha- just have different personalities and express themselves in unique ways. Right. And so if you're not used to that, you it, it may come across as, as rude. Right. Being quiet or reserved to one person is rude, whereas to another person, it's polite, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, according to stereotypes on the East Coast or New England, if you're blunt and, and, and honest uh, to one person that's being honest and and not passive into another person that's rude. And so, you know, it really just kind of depends on where you're coming from. And and it also I think depends on how you want to see the world, you know? Like if if you choose if you come to the Northwest and you're expecting it to be like this extroverted place and it's not and you choose to interpret that as everyone in Seattle is a jerk, then then that's what you're going to see. Whereas if you choose to interpret it like, well, I guess it's just going to take me a little longer to get to know people, then that's a choice that you make, right? Yeah, I think it's largely perception and the different cultures. Well, how was this experience for you, Derek? Now that it was we're great. at the end, yeah, yeah. Is it weird? I, I, I was. I, it didn't really occur to me until just now that you know you mentioned that you sent in an email about Seattle Freeze, and I, I, that was probably a while ago. And so, I mean, you've been listening to the podcast for a while, right? Yeah, I think almost a year now. So, yeah. so is this weird? Because this is where we record. You know, yeah. I always kind of imagine you recording with like an iPhone between like the three of you. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? That's what it felt yeah. like? No, no, this is like these, you know, microphones stuffed in your face. Yeah, no, it's nice. It's very professional. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> so in your head, you had us just like massive low tech. <laughs> right. <laughs> just talking around. And it, it was in the past. It's yeah. not so much anymore. But We have fantastic sound quality, so... Now we do. Yeah. 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 I never thought I'd be on the show though. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> At least not yet. Yeah. Well, it's always nice to talk to our listeners and in person. And I think a lot of the questions that you have are questions that a lot of people have. And they're questions that I have. I mean, there's questions you asked that I'm like, I'm actually not sure the answer on that. You must be a very bright person. When I was 17, I would never have even done anything like this that you're doing. I would never have even been thinking about my ongoing career. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I think it, 17, I still wanted to be a rock star, which is a ridiculous notion. And so... Um, well, you have a band, so... I did, but rock star? I mean, I, I think I wanted to be like the Beatles, which is like just this ridiculous thing. But um, I don't know. You just seem like a very mature, thoughtful person who will go far in whatever you do. And I think our field will be better off if you're in it. So I appreciate that. I look forward to hopefully taking a class from you eventually. Oh, well, I'd look forward to having you as a student. That would be great. Did you listen to the episodes with the students being interviewed? I think I listened to the first two. I still have one to go. So what'd you think about those? It was interesting. It was really nice to hear personal experiences from the school because that's something um, that I haven't really heard before, except from you and um, some of the faculty that I spoke with during the information session that I went to last summer. Yeah. Um, so it was really nice to hear some uh, some actual students, what their experiences were like. And yeah, I love it. It sounds like a very warm environment, very uh, conducive to communication, mm-hmm. very emotional, yeah. which I think is good you know, for our field to be able to express yourself so openly in a small classroom um, and with a professor that, that they respect. So Yeah, yeah. And yeah, to feel like your professor cares mm-hmm. about you as a human being and will give you the benefit of the doubt. 
Yeah, at a lot of schools that that I've heard of, is, and my experience at SPS, a lot of them are just very cold. Um, not in like a, a demeaning way or they don't care, but it just like it's a classroom. Like I'm, I'm the professor, you're the student. There's like a certain set of standards and what's to be expected in that relationship, um, which I think can be good in some ways, especially for the lower education. But I think especially once you get up into this level of education, it's important to be able to have that open line of communication and that comfortability with your professor Yeah, because you're learning so much from them. Yeah. I actually don't think it's good at any level of education. I think that, you know, hierarchy is, is really damaging to the experience of the student and the trust for the student, you know, and it's, and it's sort of narcissistic on the professor's behalf. Like I'm better than you or something. I'm not going to stoop to your level. Uh, I really find it to be this vestige of this old way, you know, this old hierarchy that I, I really wish was not there. I mean, just imagine you're a student and you feel like you can really trust your professor, you know? You're working so hard and you're dedicating so much of your soul to this endeavor. The professor owes you to make you feel comfortable, I think. And if that is not the case, then I feel like you're not getting your what is due to you. I don't know. I'm getting on my high horse, but well, that does it for another episode of psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us and thanks for coming on the show and answering all your questions. I have no idea if I answered them well or not, but um, I gave it my best shot. Thanks for coming on the show, Derek. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And out there in podcast land, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. And my cat will now proceed to eat your foot. If you had laces, she'd be really going, Oh, you do have laces. Oh, now she's going to attack your bag. Oh, now she's loving your bag. Now she's yawning. I'm just going to say everything that my cat does at the end of the show. Anyway, okay, bye.